It's usually a bad sign for you when I have to write it down, but uh, uh, it's just because there was so much I wanted to say, and I, I didn't want to uh, say it all, right? We, we, there, there's a lot to say about today, uh, and I won't say it all. Uh, Christ the King, and it's a funny thing. I actually uh, looked it up to see how many kings are alive right now, yeah, um, that if you look at human history, there's less kings now than there's ever been. Um, monarchy is kind of passing away. Um, and so for us, we might think, well, that's a title I struggle with, king. I don't have any experience of it. And I think we forget we, we do. We all have. If you ask me, there's actually more kings than ever. Uh, we just consider ourselves uh, the king. We decide what's true. We decide what's right. We decide what to do. We've made ourselves kings. Um, and uh, with that, I want us to take a look at this idea of Jesus' kingship. How does he do kingship? So the first thing we need to recognize is that when we look at our first reading today, what we're hearing is a part of a very long story, and it's actually pretty simple. For hundreds and hundreds, actually almost a thousand years, the Jews did not have a king. They had a system of judges. It was all local governance. And everything went really good. And then at some point, uh, they came to the prophet Samuel and said, everybody else has a king, why can't we have one? And Samuel said, because having a king stinks, yeah? They're going to take your stuff, right? The Bible complains about taxes. Isn't that glorious? Uh, they're going to take your stuff. And then they're all going to start to fight with each other over who gets to be in charge. And they were like, you know, we hear you. We want kings. So the Lord says, warn them again. And if they want one, we'll give them one. And this is going to shock you. They wanted one, they got one, and the kingdom crashed 105 years later. And it crashed because, of course, once anybody has that kind of power, well, all the worst people want it. And they all began ripping each other to pieces. And they did fine. The kings did great. But all the people who had to financially support their own kind of slavery, they, they didn't do so well. Big shock. You and I don't do kingship well. So when we look then at our second reading, we see that, that beautiful passage talking about who our king is. He is before all else that is. Isn't that beautiful? In him, everything continues in being. It makes it clear. Jesus is outside of time. He's above it all. He's power itself. He's love itself. He's wisdom itself. He's existence. That's our king, yeah? So what did he do with all of that? That's his throne. Right there. That's what he did with his power. That's what he did with his might. That the clearest expression of Christ the King is not our worldly vision of the enemies being crushed. Him with a mighty crown striding through. This is the clearest expression of his kingship. This is how he does power. 
We don't die. He does. It's an incredible thing to think about. The other thing our king does is he does not impose. I did not find any kings who did the same thing. Most kings, every king I could find, impose. I'm your king. You will do what I say. Our king invites. You don't have to be a member of his king. Well, you don't have to recognize your membership in his kingdom. You and I don't have to submit to Jesus. In this life, there's no punishment for not submitting to our king. No, you know, knocking at the door in the dead of the night with people clad in black. This is an invitation. And it's an invitation to submit to our king at his throne. I'll invite us all to make time this week, and, and hear me out, to just stare at a crucifix. Just stare at it. Look at it. That's what our king looks like. And if we are his faithful subjects, namely, if we respond to his invitation, then we need to think about this a lot. What does this mean? There are eight trillion things it means. But I want us to look at one specific thing this kingship means. And to look at it, what we want to do is actually go back to the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. We know about Jesus when he was about from birth until about seven. And then we don't see him again until 30 years old. Yeah? He was getting a, a couple degrees. Um, no one found that funny. When I was at MSU, I would meet people who had been in school since Christ was an infant. And I'm like, you know, at some point you need to go, you know, and just go. Uh, but anyway, so between 7 and 30, we don't know anything. And at 30, his public ministry starts with his baptism by John. And then what happens next? He's just about to start his ministry. He goes off to pray in the desert and the devil tempts him. And in one of my favorite lines in all of the New Testament, it says this. Jesus fasted for 40 days and nights, and at the end of it, you ready? He was hungry. <laughs> Bruh, you know, he didn't need to write that part. I, 40 minutes, and I'm craving food. Jesus is out there 40 days and nights. He was hungry. So the devil appears to him and says, hey, turn these stones into bread. Could Jesus have done it? Yeah, I think that might have been easy. But there's a deeper temptation here. The devil is tempting Jesus to be the king who fills our bellies. He's tempting us, and these kings exist, did. He's tempting Jesus to be the king who just gives you whatever you want. Jesus believes that you will choose him, that we will choose him when our stomachs are empty or our hearts are broken. How many times have you cried out to the Lord and asked for something? And something that was obviously good. And then he breaks our hearts. I lost count of how many times Jesus didn't do the good thing I asked. And I don't get it. But I submit. I follow him 
with a broken heart. Jesus believes you and I will choose him as our king when he doesn't give us what we want. And that's pretty incredible. The second temptation was it says the devil took him up on the parapet of the temple. Super, super high place, yeah? And he says, throw yourself down. The angels will catch you. And Jesus, uh, and again, they would have. And if you and I were in Jerusalem and a dude jumps off the parapet of the temples, an angel appears and let him down, we should go find that guy. Yeah? Go find that guy. Figure out what he's doing and do that, right? It's the temptation of the devil to tell Jesus, just be a king who gives them big signs. Fill their head with wonder after wonder. And Jesus believes in you and me and knows we'll follow him when our heads are filled with doubt. When we're struggling for a sign or a feeling of him, he knows we can still choose him and that we will. The third temptation, it says, the devil takes him and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in an instant and says, I'll give you all of these and you can rule them if you just worship me. And we kind of see the pettiness of the devil here, don't we? But we also see the, the reality that you and I are in the enemy camp every day. That every day you and I are the little subversive agents running around the devil's kingdom. But we also see that Jesus believes you and I will choose him freely. That the devil's temptation was for Jesus to be supreme dictator for life and to do it like humans do. I will make you do things. I will make you do the right thing. And Jesus refuses that. That's not the kind of king he is. He's going to invite, not compel. That every moment of human history, he's on this cross, on his throne. And saying, will you follow me? Will you submit to me? Even when your heart is broken and your stomach is empty. Even in those days where we struggle with doubt. Or we struggle with uh, signs wishing uh, we could feel something spiritual. He believes that even them will choose him freely. What blows me away is that we know God knows us better than we know ourselves. And did you know you were capable of this? Because God does. He's not wrong about you and me. Our king says, yeah, I know my people. They'll follow me because it's right. They will freely choose me with broken hearts, empty stomachs, and a mind craving signs. They'll still follow me. So we're going to park our feet at the foot of a crucifix. We're going to look at our king. And what will win us over is not his might, not his ability to make us do the right thing, not his ability to fill our bellies or to put wonderful signs every day in our lives. We're going to follow him because he loves us that much. Nobody loves you this much but him. And this is beautiful and horrible all at the same time. 
that why did he give all his blood and all his breath? Because you're worth that to him. We are worth that to him. And that's reason to follow him with empty stomachs, broken hearts, and signs, minds craving signs. We need to be in love with him. And out of love for him, follow him in freedom. Jesus, I pick you. And I'm going to wander through this kingdom of darkness, this, this garden of this veil of tears as a subversive agent in the devil's kingdom. I will love you, Jesus. I will love truth. I will love beauty. And I will love justice. And if I have to wait for my reward until your kingdom in heaven, I'm all in. Because he is worth that. Amen? Okay.